Hello, this is Tommy Franks. Welcome to the Four Star Leadership Podcast, a product of the General Tommy Franks Leadership Institute and Museum. We're here to get a view into the lives of the legacy makers, the movers and the shakers of today, to offer insights from the full spectrum of the leadership community. We'll talk to former four-star students and explore their leadership development path. We'll work to find out what they are about today and learn from the opportunities they've made for themselves in this world. It's my distinct pleasure to welcome you to this podcast. Remember, leaders are not born, they're developed. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Core Principles of Leadership with General Tommy Franks. I am your host, Elise Travis. We are on episode number 19 with our guest, Martin Edelman, and we'll be talking about the importance of family, building relationships both personally and professionally, and his personal journey to international real estate. But before we get into our program, we'll have a word from our major sponsor, REI Oklahoma. REI Oklahoma is proud to be a part of the General Tommy Franks Leadership Institute and the production and distribution of these podcasts designed to inspire leaders and difference makers. At REI Oklahoma, we have been working with small business leaders, entrepreneurs, and people who are driven to succeed for years. Highly motivated people working to own their own businesses, live in their own homes, and make the world a better place. Since its beginning, REI Oklahoma has continued to identify hurdles and deliver holistic solutions to create job growth and help neighborhoods thrive in both rural and urban communities. REI Oklahoma looks forward to visiting with you about helping your business and community grow. Visit reiok.org or call 800-658-2823 to start the conversation. The Labar family is a fourth-generation Oklahoma family. That may not sound like a long time, but our grandfathers were born here, within the Comanche Nation, before the land runs. We are the proudest sponsor of the Tommy Franks Four-Star Leadership Podcast. We hope listeners will heed the words of these distinguished men and women who have served our country at the highest levels and across all walks of life. Martin Edelman specializes in international real estate transactions involving large, complex negotiations, acquisitions, dispositions, and financing. He has been involved in the early stages of legal development of many pioneering financial structures, including participating mortgages, institutional joint ventures in real estate, and joint ventures between foreign financial sources and U.S. real estate companies. He has broad international experience in all asset classes, having done extensive work in a minimum of eight different countries and the Middle East. He serves on a number of boards and also lectures at institutionally sponsored seminars. Mr. Edelman was one of the original lawyers to have worked on bringing the Intrepid to New York and continues to serve on the Intrepid Board as Vice Chairman and on the board of the Fallen Heroes Fund, Fisher House Foundation, and the Fisher Alzheimer Foundation. 
He is one of the founders of the Jackie Robinson Foundation and is a member of the board of the Tribeca Film Festival. He is also a founding member of Bridging the Rift Foundation, which has successfully instituted an academic project sponsored by Jordan and Israel with Stanford and Cornell Universities and was awarded the Department of the Army Public Service Award. Please welcome Martin Edelman. Good afternoon, Martin Edelman. Thank you so very, very much for joining us on our Four Star Leader podcast. And I am really excited now that I found out that you haven't agreed to do any other podcasts. So we're we're feeling pretty special and pretty excited over here. So welcome. Thank you. It's an honor to be part of this. Thank you. You know, one of the things uh, we have gone through your bio and one of the things that we like to start with is we we know a little bit about you and who you are and what you do. And we're going to get more into that. But could you share with us kind of where you started out life and your parents, where you were born and, and what that was like? Sure. So um, I was born in White Plains, New York, um, second child of uh, my parents, Max and Evelyn. Um, <clears throat> my upbringing was quite conventional. I went to public schools. Um, my home life was characterized by two extremely tolerant, very politically liberal uh, parents, one of whom was an immigrant from Russia, and the other was a young woman whose parents were um, immigrants, but she was orphaned and lived in an orphanage from the time she was five till she was 16, <clears throat> and then graduated as the youngest person ever from Hunter College with a physics and engineering degree and couldn't get a job in an architectural firm uh, because she wanted to build bridges and women weren't allowed to be in those kinds of businesses. And so um, you can imagine she was a very early feminist in that sense. And so the, our dinner table was um, really a primer in liberal politics. Um, one of the few things General Franks and I actually uh, often disagree on <laughs> is politics. So um, that's always been a stimulating conversation for us because of my upbringing. Um, I was kind of a normal guy, did okay in school, played sports, was a drummer in a rock band. And then I went to Princeton University in New Jersey and uh, continued to play um and, and i played lacrosse there and the rock band i was in actually became fairly popular and we made records and played with some of the famous artists of that era fats domino and chuck berry and so i traveled a lot on weekends playing in band in worlds that were vastly different than princeton but Princeton really was the first dramatic change in my life from just not thinking about what I wanted to be or do um, to starting to realize that you, you could learn how to think, not something I'd ever thought about before. 
and what it meant to be educated. Um, my parents always had a huge um, commitment to public service. So in our local communities, they were very active in both political circles and 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 uh, work with uh, areas of poverty and uh, religion. So I had a sort of a tradition of you need to serve in a certain way. <clears throat> and um, in one of my summers at Princeton, I started working for the Kennedy family and wrote speeches in Washington in a small group for Bobby Kennedy. So that kind of opened up my world a lot. <clears throat> and of course, then felt particularly challenged by the assassination of President Kennedy and then subsequently the assassination of, of Bobby. And so that kind of sort of pushed me more towards the need to, to be active in the world we live in. I went to Columbia Law School, and then um, that was a time when Vietnam was obviously quite active. And most of my friends had either by then gotten married or had another excuse from the draft because there was a draft then. <clears throat> but sort of the second thing that changed my life, or the third, really, I'll go back to the one that was profound for me. But so I went to Princeton. I went to Columbia Law School, had, you know, what people would consider a great pedigree and then got drafted. So I spent three years in the Army, um, and that definitely changed my life. Um, I was in Vietnam a few times, really um, not in a combat capacity, but I worked for an Air Force general um, out of Dayton, Ohio, out of the Air Force base there. And um, part of our mission included regular trips to Vietnam. So I got to see the impact of combat without having to actually carry a rifle, even though I had been trained as an infantry soldier. So those three, two things, the third thing that probably affected me the most was my mother died um, about two weeks before I went to college. And my father got quite sick um, as a consequence of that. So I went from a very normal family to no family at all. My sister had gotten married and moved away. And so I went through college until my father actually got better, sort of for the first time, thinking I got to do this by myself, which I had never thought about before. So between Princeton, my mother's death, Princeton, and the Army, by the time I was, let's see, what, 28? I had kind of lived a full life, and uh, and I was ready to participate in, in life. And, and the day I got out of the Army, <clears throat> something happened that really stayed with me. So as I left Fort Hamilton, the captain who was, you know, part of the discharge uh, arrangements said, you, you should take your uniform off said, you don't want to be in civilian life with your uniform. He said, it's really tough on an American soldiers to, to wear their uniform.
uniforms in public. <clears throat> and I kind of uh, vowed that that would make a difference in my behavior and I would feel the need to change that because, you know, mostly everybody I knew had no idea what it was like to be in the military and were very opposed to Vietnam in, con in concept. American society was, as you may have remember or, or noticed, was quite negative about the war. It became a big political issue. <clears throat> so if you wore a uniform, you were part of that. So I just kept that in the back of my mind, and you'll see that how that theme actually motivates me on a lot of things that happen. So I got out of the Army. <clears throat> I was married at the time. I had gotten married just before I went in. Um, I didn't have any children yet. And I took a job as a lawyer um, in New York in a you know, fine law firm. <clears throat> and the first day I went to work, I was asked to go up and take minutes at the meeting of a corporation. And that corporation was the largest black-owned bank in America. And the meeting was up in Harlem. So I went up to Harlem and walked into a room which was really all um, very prominent black people in New York. And at the head of that table was Jackie Robinson, uh, the famous black American <clears throat> who changed life for blacks in many ways. And so I took minutes at the meeting, um, answered a few questions. It was December and I went downstairs. I was right in front of the Apollo Theater, which is a famous theater in Harlem, where I had actually played for a few rock bands when I was in college. And I was trying to think, it was about eight o'clock at night. And I was trying to think, should I take a subway, take a cab? And uh, Jackie came, walked out, came next to me and said, would you like a ride downtown? And I said, sure. So we started talking in the car and he was telling me that Governor Rockefeller, who was the governor of New York at the time, had asked him that day to start a construction company to build subsidized housing, affordable housing for, for minorities. And he said, I don't have a lawyer. Would you like to be my lawyer? And so uh, I said, Mr. Robinson, I've been practicing law about three hours. And so I'm really not sure you want me to be your lawyer. And so he pulled the car over. He looked at me and he said, I've never built a, a home. I have no idea what a construction company does. So we'll be a great pair. And I started representing him, and that opened up, I would say, 90% of the opportunities that led to the extraordinary career that I had as a lawyer. So that was, and, and as a result of, of Jackie and Rachel, um, I've been part of their whole world, um, and I just hosted a dinner for Rachel on her 100th birthday a few weeks ago. And we opened up the Jackie Robinson Museum in New York, which is the first civil rights museum in New York. And we started a foundation when Jack died 
that has been one of the most successful foundations supporting um, young black students who are not athletes um, in the country, which we started in 1973, right after he died. So, so you know, I, by the time I was, what, 30, I had had all these defining moments that just kept opening up newer and greater opportunities for me. And, um, you know, during that run from 30 to, you know, I don't know, probably 40-something, 50, um, I built an incredible legal career. I got divorced, got remarried, got custody of my two children from my first marriage when my daughter was 11 and my 11 months and my son was four and a half. And um, so all three kids have grown up together. They're all doing very nicely. And I have six grandchildren. And um, so everything was really great. And I, um, I, in that 1992, I was getting bored with practicing law. Not that I was going to get any better, but I had a very successful practice. But I was kind of doing the same thing with the same people all the time. And so I made an arrangement with the law firm that I could do whatever else I want as long as when I was practicing law, I did it in the law firm. So I did a whole bunch of interesting things because I had represented George Soros and I'm doing stuff in Russia and Latin America for him. And I started, I had started representing a family, which is probably the most patriotic family in America, the Fisher family in New York. And so we brought the intrepid to New York city in 74 and we started Fisher House, which is a very important part of the way military families can access their injured service personnel and visit them. And then we started the Fallen Heroes Fund because we realized that the families of those who were killed in action were not treated properly. And so that theme of being concerned about how people view the military was very much a part of my life during the entire period that um, I was practicing law. And then uh, one night, uh, and I guess 2000, 2001, I was honored at the Intrepid for the work I had done. And lo and behold, that same night, we honored Tommy Franks. And so I gave a speech about my views about how the military had been asked to sacrifice without being rewarded or taken care of when that sacrifice was profound. And and afterwards, he came up to me. You know, in that way he has, he said, well, he said, Mr. Edelman, I think you and I ought to be friends. <laughs> I said, okay, <laughs> right? why not? Um, I said, I'm not sure what you need uh, a friend in New York who's just a middle-class Jewish lawyer. He said, no, I think you might be more than that. And he said, I don't have any friends in New York, so this is a good thing to start with. 
and we became very close friends, uh, Kathy and my my wife at that time, Nancy, and um, and uh, General Franks and I, you know, became very friendly. And when after the invasion of Iraq, um, <clears throat> I organized the first um, uh, sort of celebrity um, visit to to the troops because the USO really wasn't doing their job. And so um, Robert De Niro and I and some others organized a, a large um, contingent, including, you know, the traditional Wayne Newton and Kid Rock and so many others. And we went to Kuwait and then toured uh, the areas in Iraq during the war. Um, <clears throat> And so that sort of theme continues of my continued interaction with with the military, and it was really put on steroids by becoming friendly with Tommy. And then um, he called me one day and said, so you should meet these people in Abu Dhabi. I think they and you would find things to do together. So <clears throat> I went to Abu Dhabi and I met the then head of the military, Mohammed bin Zayed, who now is president of the UAE. And that dramatically changed my life. So since 2002, really, <clears throat> I spend half my time doing things for the, for the government and royal family of Abu Dhabi all over the world. And in areas relating to politics and diplomacy and business and sports. And kind of every time there's a problem, I, I get to deal with it. I spent a lot of time for them in the early part of this century in Libya, which was interesting. I was an I was a NATO advisor in Afghanistan when Admiral Stavridis was the head of NATO. So, I've gotten to do just everything I ever thought I wanted to do, and then 4,000 things that I never thought about before. And, so had um, you not done any international real estate until that time? I had done some in England, you know. Um, and I, I had done a lot of work for George Soros internationally. So I had done stuff in Russia. And I had done things in China, but they weren't real estate. They were more um, not for profit or they were investments, but not in real estate. So I had both a corporate practice and a real estate practice. And I sort of my practice, you know, sort of any celebrity I had as a lawyer was really because I was lucky enough to sort of solve a couple of problems that big deals were having. So I became somewhat like a deal doctor and people would call me from all over and say, we have this issue on this deal. Could you come in and try to help us solve it? So I was kind of like an itinerant peddler, even though I had a normal law practice in New York. So I got to go, you know, places I did work in Nicaragua. I did a lot of work in Mexico um, so I always had this kind of varied career. 
So was it your partnership with Jackie Robinson that kind of got you started in real estate when he was doing the housing? Yeah, Yeah. I mean, yeah, completely. Okay. And then, so then when you met General Franks, you had done some international work, but not as extensive as when you went to... um, You've done Abu Dhabi. I see on your bio there were like six different countries, but I'm in hearing you talk about it. There's actually more than six plus the yeah. Middle East. Um, yeah. So now I do, <clears throat> I do a lot of work. So I would say I'm in the Middle East about thirty to thirty-five times a year, um, and China maybe a half a dozen, England maybe. I go to England once every two weeks for the last, since 2008. So you were, when General Franks was knighted by the Queen, I know that you're in that photograph that's in our yeah. museum. And so were you, was that part of your friendship with General Franks that you were there? Did you already have ties to the Queen? So I, I knew one of the Queen's sons, but I was only there to, to participate in the ceremony for him. I see. I see. So tell us about, I know that I was told that your biggest, uh, the most important things to you are family and relationships. And so I know that your family is very important to you. You had um, responsibility for your two children and um, lost your parents at a, a relatively early time in your life but it was the, your association with the Kennedys and Jackie Robinson that affected you in a, in a huge way as far as servant leadership. And was it the Kennedys that your association with them that encouraged you to go to law school? Had you thought about law school before then? Yeah. So my, my father and his five brothers, all immigrants, um, all went to law school. I see. All, all at night. Okay. I, I just wanted to clarify by that. I'm yeah. kind of curious. Right. And you had some, some really major influencers for servant leadership yeah. between the Kennedys and Jackie Robinson. So I can yeah. see how you got where you are, but you didn't really have that um, picture in your mind. It just opened so many doors and, and opportunities for you. I think it's, it's really great when those things happen and um, you just, go through the door and keep going. So you, uh, you and general Franks both were, uh, received awards from the intrepid foundation. You became friends and you helped organize so many opportunities for the troops in Kuwait and Iraq. I know that you were instrumental in general Franks being hired into the Washington speakers bureau and, and helped with his, book american soldier you yeah so many things and and uh are not afraid to roll up your sleeves and really get involved in something that's for certain well you know so my parents really defined for me what being a volunteer meant because everything that our family did when i was growing up was you were either an active volunteer or you didn't qualify as a volunteer. So everything our family did was like, 
I had to go do it, whether it was picking up bottles off the street <laughs> or whatever it was. So, you know, those kinds of, of definitions about behavior really stay with you your whole life. And then when you get associated with people like Jackie, and I, I represented Jesse Jackson for 25 years. I mean, even though he's somewhat controversial, but the all-in part of it um, is really important. So people who believe in something, they're all in with it. And if those of us who say that we know how to serve or pretend to say we know how to serve, that's the standard. The standard is all in. I mean, look at General Franks. I mean, he's all in. And so that's what service means. Servant service doesn't mean you sign up for a group so you have credit on your resume. Service means that you give something that that group didn't have before you were there. I to veer off just a second, I understand that you used to take a few weeks off to work on a ranch in Montana. That's oh, kind of off the path of what what you <laughs> we've talked about. Do you want to tell us about that? It's Wyoming. <clears throat> okay. And and it, the guy who owns it who was my best friend growing up and then veered a different direction in his life, owned the largest cattle ranch in the southern part of Wyoming in a little town called Dubois. And when he bought it, he said, the person least likely to visit him and enjoy it was me. So I went out and I just loved it. And so for the last 24 years, I go out during Roundup or, or branding or birthing um, and stay three or four days. I, there's 900 people in the town. I know everybody now. And oh, no, I, right. learned, I learned how to, you know, ride, rope, shoot. Not, I knew how to shoot from the military, but they were things I never thought I would do. And the peacefulness at 12,000 feet above sea level, driving cattle, which, you know, people think is like a movie set, is spectacular. And I never thought I would actually enjoy it, and I absolutely loved it. And he just sold the ranch about two months ago. Oh, shoot. And, and I went out and <laughs> sort of said goodbye to everybody. Um, but you know, at, I, I rode last summer two different times and, you know, at 81, you start to think about things. I still ski, but you start to think about, mm, I don't know. I'm going to like falling. <laughs> <laughs> so do they do, um, they bring the cattle in and I know I've yeah. done this several times in, uh, in West Texas, but it's a little yeah. bit different terrain than Wyoming. So yeah. you're out very there, always gathering and, and bringing yeah. cattle in, and then yeah, and, and they, cutting um, and cutting the bulls out. You know, after the pregnancy season is done, and then I used to go out during birthing and actually birth calves, which I thought I would 
<laughs> Anybody asked me 30 years ago if I would do something like that, I would have said, shoot me. Go during calving season. So they, yeah. they do the old fashioned dragon brand. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so you get to watch the cowboys rope them and drag them in. And no, I got to be one of those. You guys. got to be one of them. So you're flanking right. cattle, flanking right. calves. Yeah. Oh, that's we, wonderful. I, I, I could cut them and I would say, my roping was successful every one out of eight times. <laughs> I was not the best roper. Yeah. Healing a calf, healing a calf that's running away from you is not easy. Yes. That's a wonderful story. I'm glad that I was told about that because um, that's really interesting. I didn't know um, when I was told you you spent a couple of weeks on a ranch in Montana. I didn't know if you were going up there to visit, but you were actually a, a, a all in participant. So everything you do is 110 percent all in. So yeah, well, otherwise you you know, otherwise you're a visitor, and not a you know. I'm not a spectator. That's great. I I am really proud of that. So um, <clears throat> you serve on uh, several different boards um, with the Intrepid Foundation that we've talked about, uh, the Spirit Centers that treat uh, traumatic brain injury and PTSD, yeah. and um, the Bridging the Rift Foundation. That is uh, probably is that part of your work with the Middle East and real estate yeah. that you got involved no, in that? No, no, no. That was <clears throat> bridging the rift was a project we tried to do um, to build. The, in fact, I brought Tommy and Kathy to Israel in connection with the opening of that. <clears throat> it was an attempt to build a university on the rift. The rift is the valley that separates. Jordan and Israel, and okay. and we had a commitment from Cornell and Stanford to build kind of a combined educational facility, and we actually um, opened it. Um, we, we we announced it in a ceremony um, on the Rift Valley, and uh, and then celebrated it that night with the King of Jordan in Amman and then back in Israel with the Israeli leadership. But as so many things in the Middle East, it, it died of politics. So we never got to build it. But, you know, it, that led me to think uh, for Abu Dhabi of bringing an American style research university to Abu Dhabi that would give a, a full U S college degree and so and i brought nyu from new york and nyu has a full campus in abu dhabi um and gives an nyu degree to the students who graduate from it which is quite extraordinary and the school has done very well it's been open about four years now and we solve so many problems about teaching freedom of speech in a country where there's laws against criticizing the monarchy and all the gender issues that come up in American style universities that when you transport them someplace, you have to deal with. But the bridging the rift experience gave me kind of the confidence to know that if Sheikh Mohammed was willing to take that risk, that I would make that happen. So 
It's been very successful. President Clinton gave the first graduation speech um, as a favor to me. And um, so it's, you know, I've had this opportunity to, to almost have a laboratory with incredibly enlightened leadership that uh, Abu Dhabi has um, to try some of the things that help bridge that rift, if you will, in the Middle East. Let's pause for just a moment to hear from one of our great sponsors. Hello, this is Jay Zacharias with the General Tommy Franks Leadership Institute and Museum, and I would like to tell you about one of our partner sponsors. His name is Justin Krieger, and he has worked as an independent insurance agent at Krieger Insurance Agency in his hometown of Hobart, Oklahoma, since 1999. Justin is honored to help with the annual Celebration of Freedom event and has been a board member for the General Tommy Franks Leadership Institute and Museum for many years. He is also a fifth-generation farmer and rancher in Kiowa County, where cattle, crops, and even insurance is sold with a handshake. Give him a call at 580-726-3076 or come by the office if you would like to speak with Justin Krieger or Kathy Lankford about insurance. We are thankful to our customers and friends who have supported us through the years. Again, Justin would like to say how honored he is to live in such a great country and how proud he is to help sponsor these podcasts. Please enjoy the rest of this podcast experience from your friends at Krieger Insurance Agency. Now let's get back to our episode. You know, we've talked about, you've served on so many boards and in every single one, you're um, all in 110%. And I know that there have been some real um, struggles and frustrations along the way but you somehow managed to get through them and, and think through the issues. Can you share with us what was your hardest fought struggle, the, the hardest fought of all the projects that you've been in? What would you say about it? Maybe your takeaway. Well, so, I mean, I think what all of us face are two kinds of struggles. One is, let's just call it your personal life how to have a personal life, how to commit to it, how to be a parent, how to be a husband or partner. Um, and anyone who says that's not a struggle hasn't actually been involved in it. it even the successful ones are struggle. And so I think on a personal level, the struggle's always been to, to, to be all in because when you every day you make choices about what to do with your time and i i think the only elastic component of time is sleep so i've just trained myself not to need much sleep but the rest of that time we're making choices all the time and some of it's to make ourselves feel good and some of it's to make others feel good and some of it's to do to participate in life and to make sure the family unit around you is part of that participation. And, and there are times you're successful and there are times you fail. And, and when you fail, I think there's a certain amount of sadness and, 
I won't say depression, but sort of withdrawal where you say, wait a second, what am I doing here? And so those, there's no one of them that stands out. Even my divorces don't stand out in that way. They were just things that had to be undone. Um, But in doing them, you had to keep the family unit together, which I was fortunate enough to be able to do. So that's been, you know, important to me and a sustaining element of my life. I talked to all three of my children and now some of my grandchildren literally every day, even if it's only an email or a phone call or a text, but literally every day I communicate with, with all my children and now two of my teenage grandchildren because even sharing a little thing that happens in your life every day is a way to create a bond. Uh, I'm very involved in, in, we call it soccer, but it's football internationally because Abu Dhabi owns one of the great English football teams and I'm on the board of that and help run it. We now own 12 teams around the world and the best match I ever went to was when I took my grandson, who was a soccer player. And we spent the weekend in Manchester, England. And it was like so great to see how happy he was to be part of that. So that's kind of one thing. And I don't, I don't think there are any great lessons I had. Losing my mother was very tragic for me, but because we were very close. But I was still young and it was just kind of a, young sadness it wasn't a mature sadness um so i think the lesson is you either have to want to have a real personal life that has value and 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 the nurturing qualities that intimacy has in your relationship to your partner and your and your children and nieces and nephews uh or you don't and if you don't, you're losing something, but you may not even know you're losing it. So I think there's no one profound moment that changed everything for me. Professionally, I've been extraordinarily lucky. Um, all the things that I didn't do right as a lawyer or made mistakes, they got kind of absorbed in the wash. Um, they never actually set my career back. So I've been very lucky that even the one or two mistakes that I made where, you know, I said all the profoundly profane words that people say when they get really upset. And, um, but, you know, I thought like I would be on the front page of every newspaper as being the dumbest lawyer that ever worked in, in, in America. And, you know, none of the papers ever actually picked it up. So, um, so I've been lucky when it comes to that. Um, you know, I've had a few, <clears throat> had a few nights in Afghanistan when I was in Kandahar province where I was scared. Um, uh, because I was, you know, I was a grown-up already. I was, what, in my 60s um, or 70s even. Uh, and, um, you know, I was in a place where probably someone shouldn't have been. 
um, working on some some issue that Abu Dhabi was trying to help America resolve with um, some of the warlords who were sort of, as Tommy will tell you, between the Taliban and the U.S. Yes. And, um, and so I really was scared. And so that was, I won't say it was the first time I was ever scared, but having to, you know, cope with that was important. Um, and I'm actually glad that I didn't have that experience in the same way before, because it is, you know, when you think you're going to get killed because you're in an environment where people are getting killed around you. And when I was in Vietnam, I, I really was, um, I was more in a Saigon base. So when I went to the field, maybe I stayed over and there, there were, there were injury injured personnel coming in, but you didn't, it was a little more sense of remote, but in Afghanistan, there was nothing remote about it. And so I think just being able to combat fear and insecurity that you have is really important. And it, it, do I think it makes your character? No, but I think it expands it. It expands it. It gives you more ability to deal with everyday's anxieties. I mean, I am basically an insecure person. So I get up every morning thinking, what mistakes did I make yesterday? And what am I probably going to make today? So I deal with that anxiety every day. And it's actually, if I got up feeling that I haven't made a mistake, I wouldn't know what to do with myself. Do you, you mentioned when you get up every morning, I'm just kind of curious, um, do you have like a special morning routine to prepare for the day or to keep mentally, physically sharp so that you can, you have so many irons in the fire? Yeah. Um, so I, I work quite hard. <clears throat> I get up about 4.30 uh, or a little earlier if I have to, um, because my when I'm in the U.S., which is about half the time, um, you know, I have phone calls eight hours away and 10 hours away. So I get up and I usually work for an hour and then I work out. So I work out for about 45 minutes, literally every day. Um, maybe at least five days a week, most weeks, seven, um, which I think is really important. And, um, my partner, who I've been with for 12 years now, is a wonderful fitness freak, is <laughs> what I call her. And so my eating habits have changed dramatically. And I think that's helped me a bit, too. But, you know, some of it, as you know, is just plain genetic luck, right? Oh, absolutely. Some of it absolutely is. But I think um, I think it helps us mentally to try to take care of our bodies and, and feed it appropriately and, and use it appropriately to, to get the most out of it that we can. And yeah. I, I think that that's important. And I was, thank you for sharing that with us because I think, um, I think a morning routine is kind of really important about how people kind of prepare for the rest of their day 
And so, yeah, it's nice that you have a, a partner that is um, is on the same page with you and and supports that, so you can kind no, of it's, get it, together. It, I'm on I'm on the same page with her. It was not a page I was on. <laughs> That's her page. Plus, plus we have a puppy, and I feed the puppy when I'm in New York. Oh yeah. So, so what kind of puppy is it? A dachshund. A dachshund. Okay. Yeah, an yeah. overweight dachshund. I uh, the ranch that I uh, go do the same kind of work that you did in Wyoming. Um, she is a um, she's part of the Pitchfork family and raises long-haired dachshunds. So if you oh, really, this is short one, you know, She's originally yeah. from Connecticut, and oh wow. So um, if you if you need a new a new puppy, she she's got some great ones. So I just have to you know the pitch in there for her. She'll be proud. You know the dogs that 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 tend the cows are amazing, right? So being on a trail with a good trail dog, and the way they can you know you can order them and they'll go move the cows back into the line. Those dogs are amazing. Oh yeah. Yeah, they absolutely are. And uh, so tell me about, um, we've talked about, shared your relationships and how important the family relationships are. Share with us relationships in diverse cultures, crossing borders. Are you bilingual? Did you have to learn another language? No, I mean, I can speak some Arabic. Um, I tried to learn it on Rosetta Stone because I spend an inordinate amount of time on airplanes. And it just, I don't know, maybe I was too old when I started. I don't know. So I can, you know, I can understand more Arabic than I speak. But um, I think, um, so it's interesting. I think to create cross-cultural relationships, you have to be, prepared to accept rejection. So Americans tend to go someplace and they want kind of, they think relationships are like instant coffee. You know, you open the little thing, you pour the instant stuff in, you add hot water and you have coffee. Well, but that's not what happens in cross-cultural relationships where there is an inherent suspicion of Americans who come with good intentions. They don't know what that means. Um, And so being prepared for rejection and figuring out a strategy to continue the effort, even knowing it's going to take years. So when I first started going to Abu Dhabi after Tommy retired and I was going by myself, even though I had a relationship that was most extraordinary and certainly one of the, the person who was clearly going to become the leader of his people. There were people around him who basically were saying, what are you doing with this guy? Number one, he's American. Number two, he's Jewish. Why do we have him here? Why is he here being involved in things that are, you know, unique to us? And it took a lot of um, courage for Sheikh Mohammed to say, no, no, 
I know what I'm doing. And, and he put me in positions which were the message that I was okay. But those positions were often in meetings and with people and with public assignments where people were saying, you know, what, why are you doing this? In fact, when Abu Dhabi formed a partnership with Rupert Murdoch to create uh, an all-Arabic news channel for uh, the Middle East and North Africa to counteract Al Jazeera's very slanted news, but to be just objective, <clears throat> he made me the chairman of the editorial board of that all-Arabic news channel. And so I called him up and I said, are you trying to get you killed or me killed? Because that was very public. <laughs> so <clears throat> I think <clears throat> you have to really want the relationship and you have to be willing to give to it without what we traditionally think of is the rewards that relationships bring you. You have to basically say, I'm going to do this and it may fail and I will be spending time and energy and creativity and maybe money and other things. And I have a chance of making it work. But the key to success is my being patient. Not something that, you know, comes to people naturally. And I had that same issue in some of my relationships in the civil rights movement where people said, like, you know, why is this guy here? Um, and, um, and so you just have to accept the fact about what it feels like to be a little lonely. So I did a lot of work in Nigeria with Rachel Robinson, Jackie's widow. We spent a lot of time together in Lagos over the years and we did some interesting projects and we were once walking in the streets in Lagos we, we had been there during a coup where the president was shot and everybody was put in their hotel rooms and it was kind of interesting. But when they let us all out, she and I were walking um, to meet some people for dinner. And, you know, I w maybe wasn't the only white person in Lagos, but there were very few. And as we were walking, Rachel said, you know, how do you feel? And I said, well, I feel very secure because I'm with you. And, you know, we laughed. And then she said, no, how do you really feel? I said, well, look, I'm quite aware that I am one of the few um, white people here. And with that comes a certain amount of anxiety um, because you don't know what people are thinking. So she stopped and she took my hands and she said, do you know that's how I feel in New York and Boston and Washington, and everywhere in the United States. And it was so profound to me that um, it doesn't really matter at the beginning about the content of one's character. It does matter about the color of their skin. And for a person to want to be part of a multiracial you know, by multicultural society, those who are in the minority need to be extremely patient. And that patience is sometimes hard because you have to 
prove that sense of equality. So it's easier for an Irish person or a Jewish person in America to be part of the white America because it's not so obvious, right? We're all the same color. When I went to Africa and then when I went to the Middle East, I'm I'm sufficiently different physically so that that's the first hurdle to overcome. And you can only do that with the content of your character and making people believe that you're there because you want to be and that you having this relationship because you want it. And then color or the physical characteristics of the difference kind of go away and you get start to think about the things that bind you together. It's a little complicated, but that's the way I think about it. It is a little complicated, and I would think that you would have to do a lot of reflecting and thinking with a lot of emotional intelligence in the conversations and situations that you're in, and and, and as you said, a lot of patience um, to develop those relationships, but definitely emotional intelligence and reading people how they're, I mean, how they're taking in what you're trying to, to share with them or what you're trying to accomplish. Do you think you got, have gotten pretty good at reading people? Well, let's put it this way. If I haven't by now, I don't have a lot of time. <laughs> to learn. So let's hope I have. So I have on my, um, on one of my travel bags, I, you know, you have these identity tags with your name and everything. <clears throat> so I have one that says emotional baggage. <laughs> so I think that <clears throat> understanding other people's emotional baggage helps you understand who they are. So I very often am extremely observant about things that may not seem to matter. You know, how people look at you and, and, and when they stop talking, some people feel the need to dominate the conversation. So you kind of let them to see where it ends, but we all have emotional baggage. So you got to understand that to understand who the other person is. And you got to care enough to want to, because if you, you know, if you don't care, you're not going to give it the time and energy and thoughtfulness and, and, you know, involvement. Engagement is the quintessential element of building successful relationships. So what would you tell our students and our listeners? What would you, let me back up. What would you tell your 17, 18, 19 year old self, which is our, our current four star students. And then just what would you tell them and our listeners in general about what you've learned and through all the things that you've done, there's so just a wealth of, of experience there. 
So when I uh, came down, uh, I, I came down a couple of times to talk to the students. Yes. Um, and so on the plane coming, um, at, we were talking about leadership. And I think we don't realize that not everybody can be a leader, but the components of successful followership are just as important as the components of successful leadership. And so when you're in your teenage years and everybody wants to be a star, which is good because ambition is fantastic. The large, as you go into a larger and larger and larger world, not everybody's going to be a star. And you kind of try to to use the metaphor, metaphor, you have to try to find a constellation in which your star is successful enough for you to feel good about yourself because we're not all going to be Tommy Franks and we're not all going to be whoever else your hero or heroine is at the time. We're not all going to be, you know, um, uh, Maverick and Top Gun. Right. Um, and I think it's really important for everyone to manage ambition with their own talents, to be very self-aware about where your talents really are and find the place where you can really contribute those talents to the world in which you want to live. And some of it's just luck, as you said. It's just realizing that a door just opened for you and going through it without actually knowing what's in that room or whether that room is going to be followed by another 20 rooms. I mean, when Jackie said, do I want to be his lawyer? My first instinct was to tell him the truth and let him decide, right? I mean, I could have said sure, which would have been the normal reaction, I think. But I had to tell him I didn't know what I was doing. So it was, you know, if he's willing to try, I was. And um, so I think there's that combination of self-awareness and integrity and ambition that everyone needs to think about how that meet what what it means to them as a 17, 18, and 19 year old. Now, I can honestly say I didn't. I didn't think about it. I actually am probably one of those people who doesn't have a need to plan. So I I get up every day not actually knowing, I mean, I know some of the things I'm going to do, but other than the fact I'm going to make some phone calls and work out, I really don't have a plan. My partner is, she is on me incessantly is, well, we need a plan. I said, well, I don't have a plan. I've never had a plan. I went to law school because my family were lawyers and I thought, you know, it'll be interesting. I could, learn to be a lawyer. And if I wasn't a lawyer, I'd be something else. Um, so if you, if it's, if it's important for you to have a plan, you have to think about what you want to do and what you want to be. But 
it's also okay not to have a plan because life is going to give you choices. And those choices you'll make, you can make either by instinct or intellect. And if you're really blessed, you'll understand how to combine both of those. Because intellect only takes you to a point where your instinct can really help you to make the decision. That's not really specific advice for for the for your cohort of of young people, but um, they get advice from everybody, and and you know my life is much more has been much more haphazard than that, and so they should have some comfort that even in a haphazard life, if you're willing to be all in, is is gonna is gonna probably give you choices that if you make them with a certain amount of self-awareness and integrity, you'll have a good life. Life will come to you. You're, you're a great problem solver and, and all in 110%. And I think life just comes to you and at this point and you uh, decide, you know, what you're going to work on or not. Would you say? Well, that? no, 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 I wouldn't no? say that because I've been accused <clears throat> of not understanding how to say no. So I I do tend to go down some really kind of, why'd you spend your time on that? But I figure you don't know, right? So I I got a phone call once um, from a friend of mine who said his trainer, this is public now, so I can say it It was years ago. Uh, His guy who was his trainer trained a famous woman and she was having a baby by him, and he needed a lawyer to represent him. And um, I said, I don't know anything about that. He said, yeah, but you're very empathetic. Please help this guy. He's from Argentina, I, I think. So it was Madonna. Oh, right? wow. And, and then it all became public about him and everything. So I ended up spending weeks because she was very involved in negotiations. So I spent weeks, you know, sitting and talking to this guy and her lawyer and Madonna, right? Now, I had no idea whether I could do that or not, but, you know, I sort of, as we, as we worked things out, I learned more and more about the process I read. I talked to lawyers who did that all the time. And, you know, that's, you got to do those things. I mean, I ended up representing John Kennedy Jr. until his unfortunate death and still represent and advise Caroline Kennedy because I didn't let go of the relationship that I was just accidentally thrown into when I first started working for Bobby. So, you know, you just just don't give up on anything because it's not there at the moment. So a lot of life comes to you. You got to chase it, though, Delise. Yeah. You, gotta, you know, life comes to you, but it's also going to come to you maybe only at the moment, right? And then it's going to say, well, you didn't seem very excited, so we're going to move somewhere else. So you have to, when life comes to you, you have to actually do something to embrace it back to the word we use, to, to engage. If you don't engage, life doesn't come to you. It just kind of 
the, the breeze just goes past you. I think what I'm thinking is the momentum that you've built through through your life and all the things that you've accomplished and the experiences you've had and the things that you've done. It's that that momentum is is what I'm thinking about of life that just just comes like a a, a fire hydrant. <laughs> seems like it seems like to me. So. I don't know. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything else that you would like to share? You you kind of shared some really great words for our students. Anything else for our listeners that you would like to share? We appreciate so much your time. Well, I would say everybody on your side of this um, Zoom is blessed because they have um, the commitment and support of General Franks, who is truly one of the unique spirits of leadership in this country. Um, he's an extraordinary guy whose you know, life experience he's been able to translate from you know, sort of the military environment to this new life of leadership with his foundation. So I think everybody is extremely lucky to have that standard of excellence that he insists on as something that they've taken in their lives. So I know it's meant a lot to me, and um, I am sure it's going to mean a lot to everyone who's in this program. Thank you so much, Martin Edelman. It has been a great pleasure and a a true joy to visit with you this afternoon. And thank you for sharing your Monday evening with us. Thanks so much. Great to talk to you. You Bye. Thank you again to REI Oklahoma for making this podcast possible. For nearly 40 years, the board, staff, patrons, and supporters of the nonprofit economic development REI Oklahoma are committed to expanding Oklahoma's economic prosperity, earning the reputation of being one of the most comprehensive economic development organizations in the country. Business loans, training workshops, business consulting, and networking opportunities, as well as technical assistance and even commercial business space are made available to Oklahoma entrepreneurs and small businesses. For low and moderate income individuals and families, down payment and or closing cost assistance is offered. Learn more at reiok.org. This has been the Four Star Leadership Podcast. Now it's your turn, Four Star listeners. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and let us know what you thought of this episode. Be sure to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, and tune in next month for our next episode that airs every last Friday each month. Go be great. The Labar family is a fourth-generation Oklahoma family. That may not sound like a long time, but our grandfathers were born here, within the Comanche Nation, before the land run. We are the proudest sponsor of the Tommy Franks Four-Star Leadership Podcast. We hope listeners will heed the words of these distinguished men and women who have served our country at the highest levels and across all walks of life. 